Thank you for checking out the messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia, who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. This morning, uh, we are going to continue through our series on the Holy Spirit. This series uh, we've entitled Rushing Wind. And today we're going to look at a topic that I've had to learn over and over again in my walk with God. There are some things about God that uh, once you learn them, you know them for good. You, you never have to relearn them. You never forget them. You never stray from them. But there are other things that you seem to have to learn over and over again because you keep forgetting them. And it's different for every, every person, every believer. Uh, we see this in the nation of Israel. You know, the nation of Israel had to learn over and over again that God was a jealous God. They would stray from God. They would start worshiping false idols. They would begin to uh, have different gods in their life and kind of push God back. And God would send famine. He would send invasion. He would send pestilence. He would send judgment to them. Uh, not to punish them, but to convict them, to remind them of who he was and whose they were and bring them back to a relationship with God. So they would suffer this, 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 uh, this conviction, this punishment, this judgment. They would remember God. They would turn back to God, confess their sins, many times get rid of all the idols, get rid of all the false gods. Uh, and they would worship God only for a while. Uh, then they would stray again. They would grow cold towards God again. And they had to learn these lessons again and again. And what we're going to look at today is, is a theological concept that I, I know. I've known it most of my, my Christian life, and I've, I've learned it, and I've experienced it. But I tend to keep forgetting it and have to relearn it and reuse it over and over. The, the topic we're going to look at is God's willingness and God's desire to give us the Holy Spirit filling, to give us as his church and to give us as his children his Holy Spirit power. We're going to be looking at two different verses of Scripture today, one in Luke chapter 11, the other one in Habakkuk chapter 3. So you can get your Bibles ready for there. We're going to look at a lot of other Scripture, but I'll read it, stick it up on the screen for you so you don't have to keep flipping back and forth because we're going to look at a lot of them. But we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter number 11, beginning in verse number 11. The Bible says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your, shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I want you to notice for a moment the position that Jesus puts us in in this verse. He, he puts us in the position of a child. But we're not a, an older child who can take care of themselves. We're a, a helpless child. We're a needy child. We're, we're like a toddler. Uh, luckily, my kids are at the age where they're pretty self-sufficient. 
If they get hungry, they can make themselves something to eat. If they get thirsty, they can go get themselves something to drink. They need a bath, they can bathe themselves. Now, we often have to remind them to bathe themselves, but they can bathe themselves. But when they were younger, it wasn't like that. If we didn't feed them, they didn't eat. If we didn't give them something to drink, they went thirsty. If we didn't bathe them, they stayed dirty. Now, I remember one time when I was in Bible college, uh, I got up real early to go run my, my bus route, and April was very, very sick. And so she stayed home that day. Parker was about three years old, maybe two, three years old, so he stayed with her. I went, ran my bus route, went to church that morning. Uh, after Sunday school and church, I took my bus route home, and I didn't get home till about three o'clock in the afternoon, just enough time to check on April before I went back to night church. And when I, when I walked in, she was asleep on the couch. Asleep's a, a, a generous way of saying she was pretty much passed out. She was so sick. So she was asleep on the couch, had a fever, uh, just, just, just didn't look good at all. And Parker had decided he was hungry. And so he had climbed up on our cabinet, uh, on our countertop, and was reaching in the top cabinet to get the Cheetos. And so I walk in, I see my wife passed out on the couch. I see my son in a diaper standing up on the countertop trying to get some Cheetos. So he was able, even at that age, to take care of himself, but not all the time. But now uh, he doesn't have to climb up on the counter to get the Cheetos. He can, get, he can buy the Cheetos himself. He has a job. But that's not the position that we're in. We're in the position of a needy child. We are a helpless child that depends on the Father for everything. But the good news is, he's a good father. He's a watchful father that, that knows what we need. Oftentimes, he knows what we need before we even know we need it. He is loving, he is merciful, and he is willing to give to us. All we have to do is ask. When you realize two things in your walk with God, you realize your great need for God and his great willingness to meet your needs, you become a person of prayer. In a recent Pew Forum study, uh, they found that 55% of believers pray every day. Now, that sounds great, but 55% of believers praying every day is still a lot of believers not praying every day. They also found that 23% of believers seldom or never pray. And they broke it down into categories. Uh, 30 to 49 year olds, they are the most consistent prayers with 55% with a 55, 53% of them praying every day. Uh, 18 to 29 year olds, they are the one in the group that prays the least. Women tend to pray more consistently than men and wealthy and highly educated people tend to pray more than everyone else. The point is, a lot of believers, myself included, probably you included, we have a problem maintaining a consistent, disciplined prayer life. And when we, when we realize that and think about that, we, we tend to think that it's a self-disciplined problem. And that's, that's part of it. Part of it is a, a character issue where we just struggle with our self-discipline or struggle with our character maintaining that practice. But prayerlessness at its core 
is a gospel problem. The reason that we don't pray is because we are either unaware of our great need or we're unconvinced of God's great willingness to help. When we really believe those things, when we really believe that we have a great need for God and we have a great God that's willing to step in and meet those needs, when we realize those things, we become prayer warriors and praying becomes as instinctive as breathing. You know, none of us have to breathe out of self-discipline. We don't have to have the character to breathe. We breathe continually. The most undisciplined person in the world still is a consistent breather. Your body knows how badly you need oxygen. And it knows how available it is to you, so it instinctively does it for you. And that's what prayer is supposed to be like for the believer. That's what Paul meant when he said, pray without ceasing. He, he didn't mean that we're supposed to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year on our knees praying to God. He meant that prayer was supposed to be instinctive to us. Prayer was supposed to be a natural thing we did, oftentimes without even having to think about it. I don't know about you, but that's not what my prayer life is like. My pride and my unbelief in God keep me from breathing in the Holy Spirit like I should, and my spiritual life suffers because of it. There is a direct connection between prayer and the Holy Spirit power in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. The power of the Spirit is ours for the asking, but we don't have it because we don't ask for it. And we see this throughout Scripture. It's not just found in the book of Luke. In fact, we see it in one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. He's preaching to the southern kingdom just before the Babylonian invasion. And God gave him a vision of the Babylonian invasion and told him why. Because of Israel's idolatry, because of Israel's uh, sin against God. And so he has this vision of, of God sending judgment on the nation of Israel because of their sin. And Israel is in a terrible time. They're, they're steeped in idolatry. There's violence. There's famine. There's pain in the land. But Habakkuk doesn't preach against Israel. He doesn't even preach to Israel. The book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk talking directly to God. He's lamenting the, the pain that he is feeling and the, the struggles that he is going through directly to God. He's not condemning Israel. He's not preaching against Israel. He's not telling them, repent of their sins. He is going to God and saying, God, this hurts me. God, I'm struggling. God, I don't know what to do. One of the biggest struggles that he's dealing with is he is trying to understand how a God that is so good can allow such bad things to happen to him. And towards the end of the book, he, he prays an incredible prayer to God. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse number 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. 
O Lord, revive thy works in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. What he's doing there is he is pleading with God to act in the present like he has in the past. He's asking him to be merciful, to be, to be forgiving and long-suffering and gracious and peaceful and to show his love to Israel like he never has before. He's asking him, instead of taking down Israel, take down the wicked nation of Babylon. In this prayer, we see three things about the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And here they are. First thing we notice, we see prayer and the power of the Spirit. Every spiritual awakening in Scripture is directly connected to intense times of prayer. In Joshua chapter 24, we see God renewing his covenant that he made with Abraham, that he made with Moses. He's renewing that covenant with the, the nation of Israel. And this is a spiritual high time in the nation of Israel. They've, they've conquered the land. They're settling in and God is renewing his covenant with them. But it begins by saying that the congregation stood before God. Joshua 24 verse 1, it says, Joshua called for all the Israelite tribes, Shechem, and summoned the elders, clan heads, judges, and officials of Israel. They presented themselves before God. Before God renews this covenant, before God sends a time of revival to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel is standing before God, praying to the holy God. In Joshua, uh, in the book of Judges, we see how Israel, once again, they go through seasons of being cold towards God and being revived to God and times where they wander from him. And God, he would punish them and they would cry out for deliverance and God would raise up a hero or a judge to deliver them and to guide them. And each time before God raised up a judge, Israel would return and Israel returned to him. We see Israel praying to God for deliverance and power. Before revival, there was prayer. In 2 Chronicles, we see the dedication of the, the temple of God, another high point, spiritually speaking, in the nation of Israel. And it begins with a heart-rending prayer by Solomon. And when he, he prays, God sends down fire from heaven and he, he fills the altar with this glory. And Solomon then tells the people what God said to him in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. He said, if my people, famous verse we all know, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer of this place. When God sent revival to Israel at the temple, he says, look, whenever you need revival, you just have to confess your sins, humble yourselves, pray to me, and I will send the Spirit of God to you. God shows up when people pray. In 1 Kings, Israel, they're at a place where they're divided between worshiping God 
and worshiping Baal. We know the story. Elisha goes up on Mount Carmel and has a showdown between God and Baal. And he challenges the, the prophets of Baal to bring their God and have their God show himself. And so they build the altar and make the sacrifice and cut themselves and dance and scream and holler and do all kinds of things for hours. And nothing happens. But Elijah, he repairs the altar. He offers a sacrifice. And he falls on his knees and he prays. And it's a great prayer, but here's the, the essence of his prayer. He falls on his knees, he humbles himself, and he says, God, make yourself known. And God sent fire from heaven to remove any doubt that he was there. The renewal over under, of Jerusalem under Nehemiah, it happened as the people listened to the word of God. They confessed their sins and they prayed. All throughout Scripture, God shows up. Revival happens as a result of God's people praying. We see it in the New Testament too. The New Testament shows us that the Holy Spirit shows up in answer to the prayers of God's people. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven which said, this is my beloved son in him. I am well pleased. Jesus prays and the spirit descends like a dove. And in Pentecost, when the spirit comes at Pentecost, it was because the church was together in one place praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 says these all continue with one accord and in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They, they get together and they pray. And as they're praying together to church, the Holy Spirit indwells them. And it sounds like a rushing wind and they get tongues like a fire on their heads. And they, they begin doing miracles for God because they prayed for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit showed up. In Acts chapter 4, they were dealing with intense opposition. The Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of the day, were, were beating them and telling them and commanding them to stop preaching Jesus. And so what they did was they, they got together to pray. And look what happens in Acts 4.31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke the word of God with boldness. Every major spiritual awakening in Scripture, every major spiritual awakening in history is connected with intense prayer. You know, we, we as believers, we especially since this whole COVID-19 thing, and 2020 has been a crazy year. And God's people have been crying out for revival. You know, we had a revival scheduled for November, of course, because of all these things happening in our church with COVID. We had to cancel the revival or reschedule the revival. But revival is not something you can plan. Revival is not something that you can schedule. It's not something you can predict. Prayer and revival go hand in hand. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says the inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God, a thirst, a living thirst for the knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting 
manifesting himself and his power, rising and scattering his enemies. Our problem is getting to a place where we realize how absolutely impotent we are. At first, we persist in thinking that we can set the situation right. We think if we just write a new book, preach some better sermons, start some new mission works, adopt a new program, this will stem the, t stem the tide of the enemy. But we come to realize at long last that it's not working, at least not effectively to stem the tide and save our children or our community. And then we remember the promise that when the enemy comes in like a flood, it is the Lord who will raise up a standard against him. And so we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. It's not so much an organized prayer emphasis as it is an act of desperation. And then, and only then, does the power of the Holy Spirit come flooding upon us and into us. And he does in a moment what incremental organization can hardly accomplish in half a century. Are you there yet? As a believer, are, you, are we there as a church yet? Do you realize that what you are trying, what you are doing to try to fix the problem or try to revive yourself is not working? It's not, it's not working in your marriage. It's not working in your, your relationship with your children. It's not working in your, your struggle to conquer that sin. It's not working in, in how you're handling your finance or how you're doing everything else. What you're doing is not working. You need the Holy Spirit of God. Are we there with our church and our community? You know, as a church, especially, we're always thinking, how can we help reach our community? How can we grow as a church? And especially now, during these times, we're, we're trying to rack our brains and figure out what can we do to, to reach the community? What can we do to grow the church for the glory of God? And it's hard right now. People are scared right now. People are concerned right now. And so what do we need? we need? We need different strategies. We need better programs. We don't need any of that. We don't need better programs. We don't need better strategies. We don't need better sermons. Thank goodness, because you're not going to get them. What we need, what we should hunger for in our lives, in our churches, in our ministries, is an outpouring of the Spirit of God. It is Him that can accomplish in our lives and in our church and in the lives of others in a moment. What will it take us 50 years to do? So we see that prayer is always connected to the Holy Spirit outpouring. Second thing that I want to look at, I want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit. There are four things we'll look at. There's a lot more than four things, but there are four things we're going to look at in the Bible that the Holy Spirit does when he comes. And these are things that only the Holy Spirit can do. First thing he does is he convicts us. In John chapter 16, verse 8, it says, When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit changes our desires. We're going to look at it a little bit too, but he makes sin feel wrong and distasteful. He convicts us when we sin against God. He convicts us when we do wrong. You know, when you do something wrong, when you, you hurt someone on purpose, 
You know, you should feel wrong when you hurt somebody by accident, but you, you say something because you're in a fight with your wife or your husband and you know exactly what to say to, to hurt them and you say that thing that hurts them deeply and you feel bad about it. That's the Holy Spirit conviction. When you're on the internet, maybe you're not doing anything wrong, but all of a sudden you find yourself looking at a, a pornography site that you shouldn't look at and you feel bad about it. That's, that's Holy Spirit conviction. The Spirit convicts us of sin. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is when sin becomes distasteful, sin feels wrong, and Jesus and His righteousness becomes beautiful. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is when God becomes real, when judgment becomes real, when sin becomes stupid. What are you chasing that God doesn't want you to? Conviction is when what you're chasing becomes distasteful and you want to chase Jesus. That is a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Sin is no longer fun. Eternity seems close and Jesus becomes beautiful to you. You know, John Piper, he says that a sign of the Holy Spirit is a quick and frequent conviction of sin. If you are a believer and you can sin against God and it not convict you, you've got a problem. You've either strayed so far from God that you have quenched the Holy Spirit and grieved the Holy Spirit so much that your heart has become hard, your conscience has become seared, or you never had the Holy Spirit to begin with. Conviction of sin is a sign of Holy Spirit filling. Not only does he convict of sin, he creates all. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 43. It says, For fear came to every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The word fear there, it literally means awe or reverence. The Holy Spirit creates a sense of awe, a sense of worship before God. Before God's Spirit comes, there's, there's knowledge of God, there's knowledge of doctrine, but then He comes and the knowledge of God and the knowledge of doctrine is swallowed up by the magnificence and the glory of His presence. You know, as I was studying this week, I noticed something interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, you're going to find a recurring statement. And that recurring statement is the fear of the Lord. This, this statement, this phrase, it always is accompanied by when people are awakened to the presence of God. They see the presence of God and they, they experience the fear of the Lord. You don't see that in the New Testament very much. In fact, you see that phrase 27 times in the Old Testament, but only one time in the New Testament. What happened? You know, the fear of the Lord is important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the Lord keeps his covenant with those that fear him. So why is the fear of the Lord so important in the Old Testament, but it's almost non-existent in the New Testament? John Murray, he's an Old Testament scholar. He says that the phrase in the New Testament, the fullness of the Spirit, it took the place of the fear of the Lord. They're synonymous. 
They both talk about a profound spiritual encounter with the presence of God that goes way beyond our intellectual beliefs. It has nothing to do with religious practices. It has to do with a sense of awe in God's presence. It has to do with an awareness of his glory. He convicts of sin. He creates all. Thirdly, he gives you a heart for God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For God is the one working in you both to will and do his good pleasure. To will and do his good pleasure. It's not just the Holy Spirit that gives you the power to do the work of God. The Holy Spirit gives you the desire to do the work of God. He gives you the power to accomplish it and the desire to, to, to complete it. He creates new desires in you so that you begin to crave God. It's the, the idea of your tastes. I love oysters. I don't like cooked oysters. I don't like steamed oysters. I like raw oysters. Pop open the shell, scoop around that little slimy booger, put some lemon juice on there, some horseradish sauce, and just slurp that puppy down. Man, it's good. I've always wondered, I love them, and I've always wondered who was it that was so hungry that they first popped one of those things open and thought, well, I'm so hungry, I'm going to eat this snot booger. But I'm glad they did because I love oysters. I love sushi. Raw tuna, raw salmon. I, I just, I love them. And sometimes... I crave them. Now, I understand a lot of you watching are probably thinking I'm pretty gross. Eating raw oysters, eating raw, raw, raw sushi. And again, oysters, I love the taste. The texture has a lot to be desired. You got you to gotta swallow it whole. Don't ever chew a raw oyster. It's gross, but it tastes wonderful. So a lot of you are thinking I'm pretty gross and you, you don't like them. I love it. You don't. That's fine. That just means that there's, there's more for me. That's my taste. That's what I like. That's what I crave sometimes. But there are some things I hate and have no taste for. Cottage cheese is gross. It's nasty. I don't know how you people eat it. Pickled beets are just, they're, they're, they're the devil's apple. I don't know why you people, how some of you people enjoy them. Buttermilk is disgusting. They're nasty. Buttermilk, look, buttermilk is great for pancakes. Buttermilk is great for biscuits. But that's it. It is not meant to be drank. But April loves all of that. She loves cottage cheese. Loves drinking buttermilk. Matter of fact, she'll take buttermilk, pour Cheetos in it, and eat it like cereal. have the Holy Spirit power inside of her. That's why. But I haven't always liked oysters. I haven't always liked sushi. My tastes have changed. Say, so, well, maybe it'll change towards buttermilk and cottage, cottage cheese and beets. No, they won't. I've, I've, I've tried throughout the years. Every five or six years, I'll try cottage cheese and I'll try beets and it's still gross. So I'm never going to change on that. But my tastes have changed. Now, They'll never change for cottage cheese and pickled beets and buttermilk, but they do change. And that's what the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer. 
He changes our desires. He gives us a taste for God. He gives us a heart to want to serve God and please God. See, Christianity is not a have-to religion. And if, it's, if you think it is, if you think Christianity is just a bunch of you have to do these things, it's because you've never encountered the Spirit of God. Christianity is a get-to relationship. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you do what is right. He gives you a love for what is right. He gives you a love for what is right so that you naturally do it. You know, I don't have to eat oysters. I get to. I don't have to eat sushi. I get to. I don't have to kiss my wife. I get to. I don't have to eat a steak that's cooked medium rare. I get to. I don't have to take a nap. I get to enjoy all of those things. So the Holy Spirit gives me a heart for God where I don't, I don't have to serve God. I don't have to be faithful to the church. I don't have to be faithful in my tithes and offerings. I don't have to witness to other people and share them the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to spend time with God. I get to do all of those things. The Spirit gives me a heart for God. You know, Paul tells us in Galatians that the Spirit of God does in our hearts what the law never could. The law demands you do what is right. The Spirit gives you a love for what is right. The, the law commands we have to have love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and goodness. The Spirit gives us a taste for all those things. What's the fourth thing the Spirit does when He shows up? Fourthly, He empowers the church. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 10. He who descended is also He who ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the service, and for the building up of the body of Christ. We all come into the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, into a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we're going to dive deeper into this, uh, this, this thought here and this verse here in a couple weeks. But Paul says that the Holy Spirit give, gives gifts to the church to help equip the church and help build the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers us to help each other. To help each other really know God. You know, a Spirit-filled church, everywhere you turn, you see Jesus. The Holy Spirit turns His people into the eyes and the ears and the mouth and the feet and the hands of Jesus. He empowers us to be Jesus to each other and to the lost world. I want those things for our church and they only come whether in a church or whether through our life, through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through prayer. Third truth we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see very briefly how the Spirit comes into a church. Throughout the Bible, we see some examples of what it looks like in the life of a church when the Holy Spirit comes. We're going to see one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. First, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart 
And they gnashed their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, closed their ears and rushed at him in unison. Of course, this, this verse is the, telling us the story of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is standing up boldly preaching the gospel to a very angry crowd. They are so mad at him that they begin biting him before he even gets finished his sermon. Now look, I've preached some bad sermons before, but I've never preached a sermon so bad that people came up and started biting me. But that's what's happening with Stephen. Tim Keller says that this verse shows a pattern for being filled with the Spirit. What happened in Stephen's life? Well, first of all, he lifts his eyes to heaven in prayer. Look, he's facing some very difficult times. He's having people bite him. They're eventually going to kill him. And what does he do? He lifts his eyes to heaven in prayer. And while he's lifting his eyes to heaven in prayer, what happens? God gives him a glimpse of Jesus's glory. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And that, that statement there, I see Jesus standing, is a little odd. Because everywhere else in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus in heaven, Jesus is sitting by the right hand of the Father. But here, he's standing. So why is he standing? What's the significance to him standing? Because during this time, every religious leader in the area was calling Stephen a heretic. But Jesus is standing on his behalf before God. He is telling God the Father, he is mine. They call him a heretic. They call him a fool, but I call him mine. He is a child of the king. And Stephen sees Jesus in all his glory. And suddenly the opposition, those who are literally biting him, don't matter. He says, if Jesus is for me, then who cares who is against me? If that is a treasure and the glory that he's prepared for me, then what I'm facing right now is just light affliction. He prays, he sees the glory of God, and he proclaims it. That's the pattern. You pray, God opens your eyes to his glory, and you proclaim it. That's the fullness of the Spirit. You are transformed and filled with the Spirit. And then you proclaim Jesus with confidence and power. The verse goes on, the story goes on to tell us about a man named Saul who was there holding the people's coats. He, he organized this mob to kill Stephen. Next chapter, this guy Saul is riding down the road. And he encounters Jesus. He's saved. He's converted and he becomes the Apostle Paul. The greatest Christian in the New Testament. The greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Now, what changed him? He met Jesus, yes, but Stephen prepared him to meet Jesus. Stephen was just a regular guy. He wasn't an apostle. He was just a, a church member. He was just a believer. But Stephen testified of Jesus even through his pain. In his pain, instead of praying for deliverance, he prayed to see the glory of God and proclaimed it. Maybe in your pain, instead of 
praying for God to deliver you. Pray to see the glory of Jesus in your pain so you can testify of him with confidence. You know, God may allow you to go through pain so you can proclaim him in power. That's what the Spirit does in us and in the church. But then we see another one in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 33. God tells Moses his plans to send the nation over of Israel over the Jordan River to conquer the promised land uh, by his power. But he says, but I'm not going with you. I'll give it to you. I'll send angels ahead of you. I'll prepare the way for you, but I'm not going. He says, because you people are a stick-necked people. He says, they're too stubborn. They're too self-reliant. They're too enamored with the idols of the world. And the nation mourns. The nations repent. They turn to God and Moses tells God, God, if you're not going with us, then we're not going. If you don't go with us, how will the people know that you're the one true God? How will they know that we are yours? They repent. They pray to see God's glory. And his presence comes upon them so strongly that the rest of the nations in the area see it and they know that they belong to God. When the Spirit comes to his people and his church, it's obvious to everyone, even non-believers. You know, God wants to send revival. He wants to send revival to our nation. He wants to send revival to our church. He wants to send revival to us personally. I want it, but it's gonna take two things. It's gonna take repentance and prayer. What sins are you holding on to? that you think no one notices, no one knows about? What sins are you trying to hide? Remember, remember Achan, book of Joshua, they go over and they conquer Jericho easily. God does it for them. And then they, God tells them, don't touch anything in the city. And Achan takes some clothes, takes some gold. And then they go to another city and it's a little puny little village and they're, they're beaten by it. People die, why? Because Achan had sinned and the presence of God had left them. I'm not trying to send you on a witch hunt to go through the church and see who's doing what sin. I'm trying to get you to look in your own heart. What sins are you holding on to? What are you harboring that you think no one knows about and that doesn't hurt anybody? It keeps the presence of God from you. It keeps revival from coming to you. When God's presence is real, sin becomes intolerable. And his presence won't become real until sin is repented of. There's a book that chronicles the last 400 years of revivals in Christianity. And it says this about the revivals in China and Korea. It says, the great revivals in China and Korea in the past century have been characterized by this. Awareness of God's holiness compels believers under conviction of the Holy Spirit to seek Christ's forgiveness. Sin's horrors become unbelievably evident. Revival begins with repentance. Are you quenching the Spirit in your life? Are you grieving the Holy Spirit? Are you keeping revival at bay? But it also takes prayer. 
We need to understand we don't need a new ministry. We don't need a new program. We don't need any new strategy. We need God. We need to cry out to him and realize that he hasn't changed. And we need his power and his wisdom and his presence. We need to be awakened. We need to be revived. We need the spirit of God and it is ours for the asking. But if you're watching this morning and you've never been saved, the spirit's not yours yet. You can't have the Holy Spirit. You can, but you have to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Savior. You have to realize that you were born a sinner. You were born an enemy of God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You were born a sinner opposing God with no hope and nothing you could do of your own. But God loved you. And He loved you so much that he came down, took on flesh, was born as a baby Jesus, lived a perfectly sinless life. He did what you could never do. He completed the, the law of God and he lived a sinless, perfect life. And he died for you. When he died on the cross, he didn't die because of his sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died to pay our sin debt, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later to reconcile us and redeem us to God the Father. He did all the work. All we have to do is trust in Him. All we have to do is believe that He did for us what we could never do and accept His gift of salvation. If that's you this morning, you've never done that, I urge you to do it this morning. Don't wait till later. You may not have later. Bible says you are not promised tomorrow. So if you're listening and the Holy Spirit's been convicting your heart and telling you something's not right with me, I don't have a relationship with God like I should or like I need to, I need to accept Him as my Savior, do that this morning. I'll lead you in a prayer in a little bit and you can accept Christ as your Savior. There's no power in the prayer. The prayer is just you crying out to God, God, I need you. And God in response, because He loves you so much, will come into your heart and will save you. But maybe you're listening and you are saved. You are a believer. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, but you're not enjoying His power. Have we asked for it? Have we fallen on our knees and cried out to God and said, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help me in my marriage and help me with my children and help me in my job and help me in my walk with you. God, I need the power of the Holy Spirit because if we just cry out and ask God for it, God will give it to us. It's ours for the asking. Maybe you need to cry out in repentance. You've sinned against God. Maybe you've sinned against someone else. You've been critical. You've been gossiping. You've spread lies or rumors. Whatever it is, you've hurt another believer. Yeah, you need to confess to God, but you've got to make it right with them. You know, Jesus says that if you come to the altar with your sacrifice to God, but you've got a problem with a brother and sister in Christ, He says He won't even accept your sacrifice until you go make it right with them. Maybe that's what you need to do. You need to make it right with another brother and sister in Christ. You need to make it right with God. Repent 
and prayer will give us the Holy Spirit power. I'm going to dismiss this in prayer. Before I do, if you've, you know, again, if you're listening, you're watching, and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And again, there's no power in the prayer. I just want you to pray after me and accept Christ as your Savior. If that's you and you want to be saved this morning, just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know that my sin will send me to hell. Lord, I know that there's nothing I can do to save myself. But Lord, I also believe that you love me so much that you took on the form of a man. You lived a life I couldn't have never lived. You lived a sinless life and died for my sins. I believe you rose three days later to pay my sin debt. And God, I accept your death, burial, and resurrection as payment for my sin. Thank you, God, for dying for me. Thank you, God, for rising again for me. Thank you, God, for doing for me what I could never do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining with us this morning. If you accepted Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to reach out to us. We want to rejoice with you. We want to pray for you. We want to help you in the next step. There's some information in the, the description of this video. You can email me. You can text me. You can reach out to me any way you can. We just want to help you. To the New Grace family, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. We love you. Hope to see you soon. growing and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like to